Well, good morning. I'm going to do what Dennis did. Um, I'm going to say he's risen, so I'm hoping you guys know what to do. He's risen. One more time. He's risen. Oh, that is beautiful. Well, I am Shaq, I'm one of the pastors here at Garden City Church, and I am so excited and nervous at the same time. Yes, I am a human. Uh, so uh, before we kind of jump into this, I want to be kind of honest, if I can be honest. Um, yes. uh, preparing this sermon was hard. Um, it was difficult because I wanted to think a lot and go through the commentaries and try to formulate this perfect sermon. But God didn't speak to me as quickly. He spoke to me through other people's experiences. And I was like, whoa. I did read the commentaries, but he spoke to me through other people's stories. So we're going to read Luke chapter 24, verse 13 to 34, and then we're going to pray. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Luke 24. And I'm going to read from the NLT version. This is what I prefer. It says, That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along together, they were talking about everything that happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. Jesus, but God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all these things that had happened there the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We have hoped that he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel. That all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his temple, his t uh, sorry, his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told that Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to sea, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the woman had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. By the time they were near Emmaus and the end of their journey, Jesus asked if he was going on. But they begged him. Stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. He broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. And at that moment, 
he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found 11 disciples and the others who have gathered with them who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Let's have a word of prayer. God, you are the creator of all things. You are the God who knows us. God, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Would you open our ears to receive your word? And Father, would your spirit rest on me as I communicate your truth? May you hold back darkness in this moment and allow us to hear from you clearly. And may you encourage us with the hope of the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's good. On this Easter Sunday morning, we find ourselves traveling a painful, familiar road. Regardless of identity, age, circumstances, believer, and non-believer, each of us know this road. We walked it, we traveled on it, we lost our way on it, we left it behind and then we returned to it. The road is the road to Emmaus. And we recognize it by the words we speak when we drag our feet on the gravel of a non-narrow stretch road. But we have hoped, but we have hoped that the sickness and the accident will spare our loved ones. We have hoped our marriage will be easier. We have hoped that depression will lift. We have hoped to be married by a certain age. We have hoped to carry the baby to turn. We have hoped to have our own children. We have hoped for a financial breakthrough. And we have hoped to get that job promotion. The very words we speak on the road to Emmaus are words of pain, words of loss, anger, disappointment, confusion, and longing. These are the words we say to ourselves when we come to the end of our hopes, when our hope is ruined. Our expectations are crushed, and there's nothing left to do but leave defeated and hopeless. But we have hoped. In our Easter story this week, Cleopas and his unnamed friend says the same words to the stranger who appears alongside them as they walk on Emmaus on the Easter morning. But we have hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had expected Jesus to be this political Messiah who would deliver Israel as the angels proclaimed. They were hoping he would break the imperialist domination of the Romans by force. Yet, from their knowledge, 
Jesus is dead. The Jesus who died in the most blackest way possible with his hands up and his mom there watching him. The Jesus who was mocked and killed and spit on and clothes who were sold. This is the Jesus that was dead. They had zero expectations of ever seeing him again. The Lord they risked everything for. The Messiah that they thought would change the world has now died the most humiliating and godless death imaginable. And the promises and the prophecies of a new kingdom come to nothing. Even worse, they heard the rumors of Jesus' tomb being empty. They can't find his body. And the woman who loved and followed Jesus appeared to be delirious with reports of angels who say he's risen, he's alive. How completely things have fallen apart. Can you imagine what that day was like for them? For centuries, the Israelites have been under the feet of oppressors, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and now Rome. They are waiting to be liberated, waiting to be set free, but now their crucified king is dead. And when you sit long with this Emmaus story, it exposes the complexities of emotions. It exposes the mystery of Easter. On the very day we pack our churches, we wear our Easter outfits and sing our hallelujahs, it is much easier for us to shout, to proclaim that he is risen and he is alive. That is true. That's because we have been given the whole redemptive story. But these early disciples, these first century Christians, did not fully understand God's redemptive plan. They wrestled with the meaning of Easter. The road to Emmaus offers us defeat, disorientation, and frustration, which is to say, sometimes the reality of the resurrection takes longer than three days. Sometimes the lament and grief of Good Friday remains. Sometimes seeing and recognizing the risen Christ is hard, very hard. This year, as the COVID crisis continues, we're all wearing masks. The war crisis between Ukraine and Russia continues. High gas prices. Mourning with friends, the increase of divorce around us, the 17 mass shootings just in this month, the shootings and deaths throughout our neighborhoods and cities, the effects of broken systems that keep my family and other families in bondage. And I haven't even touched your life. That's not even scratching the surface. But it feels like 
I don't know about you, but it feels like we've been living in two years of Lent where death and harm and violence are persistent and reigning supreme. Like what does the resurrection even mean? We can think about theology, we can give a right answer and say God is risen, but what does the resurrection mean from experience? It looks like death is winning. It seems like the resurrection is so far off in another dimension, waiting for us on the other side of heaven and not in proximity. It feels like death is winning. But I'm very thankful for this honest witness to this post-resurrection story. I'm thankful that the journey continues into Easter evening when hope doesn't sound believable, but possible and not yet realized. I'm thankful that even the road to Emmaus, the road of despair, the road of brokenness, the road of confusion is a sacred road. It's a road that our risen Messiah walks, a road that welcomes and honors our deep failures, our deep pains, our deep disappointments, and our deep fears. I'm thankful. As I reflected on this Luke's gospel for this week, it's what struck me is how many people I know who are currently walking on a road to Emmaus. They had left Jerusalem, the place of God. They are walking on a place of despair, walking on a place of brokenness. And what struck me is how the Emmaus narrative reveals the peculiar heart and character of God. Again, I'm stricken and reminded that Jesus is separate, greater, wiser, and broader than what I make him out to be. And his activity in unexpected places transcends my, my perception of him. So in my time sitting with this for quite a while, I noticed four things. One is a quiet resurrection. Can we say quiet resurrection? Oh, that's good. You guys are participants. That's good. The second one is healing through storytelling. Oh, that's good. Next one is the power of small things. And the last one is the restore hope of Easter. It's pretty good. Pretty good. So the first one is a quiet resurrection. I would imagine that a God who suffers a torturous and wholly injustice death will return with vengeance, determined to shout his triumph from the rooftops and prove all his killers wrong. It's good, baby. The baby's agreeing with me. But Jesus does no such thing. As far as we know, he doesn't enter the temple and make a scene. He doesn't knock on Pilate or Herod's door to negotiate Barabbas' arrest. He makes no effort to vindicate himself to avenge his painful death. 
Instead, on the evening of his greatest victory, the risen Christ takes a walk. He takes a walk on an obscure, out-of-the-way road when he notices two of his followers walking ahead of him, returning from Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. He then approaches them. He walks with them, but his countenance was hidden from them. This is not, I don't know if you grew with me, but this is not, I'll admit, what I want from a resurrected Christ. But we have hoped he'd be more revealing, more convincing, more extravagant, and less mysterious. We have hoped he'll make post-Easter faith easier and not complicated. So why then would he shut their eyes from seeing the risen Savior? Why? The answer is, he had a better reason and a better time. God closed the disciples' minds so they could not understand nor grasp Jesus' connection to the cross. God knew it was best for them to go through the despair and the confusion of the cross before they came out into full light of the resurrection. Again, part of the frustration we face on the road to Emmaus is the disappointment of a quiet resurrection. The, the, the disappointment of a Jesus who sometimes prefers the hidden, the diligent, and the subtle encounters. Number two, healing through storytelling. These two disciples were exchanging ideas, talking back and forth, still in a state of bewilderment over what just happened in Jerusalem. Jesus then interjects himself into this heated conversation by asking them to tell their story. In verse 17, Jesus asked them, What are you discussing so intently as you walk along? When, Je when they heard Jesus' question, they stopped in their tracks, astounded and gripped with Sadness by his question. Cleopas and his companion tell Jesus everything. They share with him the story of their faith, their defeat, their confusion, their hopes and uncertainties. They tell Jesus the entire story. See, our stories will gain momentum in death only to the degree that we can honestly embrace both loss and fear. But listen to the contempt and the devastation in her voices. They said, are you the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all these things that happened there the last few days? What things? Things that happened to Jesus. The man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed them over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We have hoped he was the Messiah who come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. And Jesus, as patient as he is, 
listens. He doesn't cut them off mid-sentence. He hears them out, allowing them to vent all of their frustrations. He validates their vulnerability before reminding them of victory. And then, when they're done, he concludes the story by filling in the gaps. Love when he does that. As so often, Jesus' most gentle teaching and self-disclosure begins with a rebuke. He tenderly rebukes them for their failure to believe the promise of Scripture. With full emotion, he breaks their misconceptions by saying this, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the Scriptures. Wasn't it predicted that the Messiah will have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Friends, suffering was necessary. It was necessary. Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians where he tells us that our teaching and our faith will be useless without the resurrection. Suffering is necessary. We cannot divorce the resurrection from this suffering Messiah. So in his narration to the men on the road of Emmaus, the story shifts. It's a story that always was. It was something more expansive, superior, deeper, sweeter, wider, richer than the travelers of the road, the travelers of Emmaus understood. He seems to say, here's what you're missing. Here's what you're not seeing. Here's what you're not looking at. When Jesus tells the whole story, he restores both its context and its glory. The core of the story he tells is woven in memory, woven in tradition, woven in history, woven in tr- scripture. He helps the travelers reimagine their place in a narrative that long precedes them, a narrative that surrounds and embodies every part of their intrinsic story, every part of your intrinsic story of loss, grief, confusion, and shattered hope without being conquered by it. He concludes all of it. See, when Jesus tells the story, the life, the suffering, the death, the vindication, and the exaltation of a Messiah finds its place in a cosmic plan of redemption and hope that resounds throughout all generations. It finds its place. And when Jesus shares his story with these travelers, the scripture says their hearts burn, burn with devotion. It burns with desire. Your hearts ever burn when you read the scriptures? Imagine having a commentary written by Jesus. He, ex- he just explained all the scriptures to them. This is why Isaiah came. This is why Jeremiah came. This is why this prophet came. This is why I have come. 
And the scripture says their hearts burned with desire, burned with devotion. I don't know who needs to hear that, but if your heart is cold right now, the Lord wants to burn your heart with devotion, burn your heart with desire. So the power of small things. Although Jesus had explained the scriptures to his followers, they had not discovered the identity of this visitor. By delaying their discovery, Luke heightens the suspense of the story for his readers. While reading this, I wondered, when would they finally realize this is Jesus? See, Jesus pretends to go forward, thus allowing the two followers to urge him to stay with him. They say, can you stay with us? It's late. And these are the words of a patient Jesus waits to hear. He says, yes. Jesus accepts the invitation by staying. And as Jesus reclines at the table with Cleopas and his companion, he shares a meal. Jesus now becomes the host and no longer the guests. Jesus takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he gives it. All enactments representing the body of Christ. His body was taken. His body was blessed. His body was broken and given. Seems so small of a thing. This small thing was powerful, changed everything. During those hard and dreadful times, and hearing the horrible stories of a now-crucified leader, the fear of their future, the fear of their family and communities and their nation under room, it is indeed difficult to trust in the transformative power of small things. A bite of bread, a sip of wine, a common table, and a shared meal. With the breaking of bread, God cleared their vision, and they knew who he was. The connection between what God has promised through Moses and all the prophets and what God has delivered through Jesus became clear through the power of small things. These two disciples saw Jesus more clearly and more richly and more completely. They encountered, experienced, and recognized who Jesus is and what God has accomplished and accomplishing with him. See, the unison and the harmony between the word and communion not only made it a reality for the disciples, including us as well, but it gave birth to the joy of the resurrection. It gave birth to the freedom that Easter brings. The small things, the power of small things. And now, the finality of the restored hope of Easter. It was late, and they can't seem to wait to report this to tomorrow. The news is too good to keep to themselves. They had to go back. 
preaching now. I hear the clapping. Can I get an amen? Oh, that's good. The news is too good to keep to themselves. They must tell the others about Jesus appearing to them, so they return once to Jerusalem. There, the eleven and the others still gather and quite excited. Before the two can get their story out, the reports of the truth of the woman's story fill the room. It's true. He did rise. He's risen. He appeared to Simon. He is true. See, it is the resurrection that welcomes us back to embrace suffering and hope. It is the resurrection that creates liturgies of ache and holy belonging. It is the resurrection that is here and now. See, instead of running away from a place that was marked by fear and death and oppression, they can now boldly return by saying, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your sting? I love when Paul says that. He mocks it. Oh, death, where is your sting? See, because of the reality of the resurrection, we can look more closely at horror, more closely at death in a way that we could not before because without, because we couldn't without the promise that one day our bodies will be raised as well. We can look at death differently. The resurrection doesn't deny suffering and death. Those things are real. But it gets right in the midst of it, right up close to it, and says something new will be created here, and we get to be participants. See, our hope would not put us to shame. Our true hope would not put us to shame. Friends, Jesus has risen from the dead. It's not figurative speaking, but it's actually a literal thing. He is risen from the dead. To meet each and every one of us on the road to Emmaus, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our disappointment, in the midst of our anger, to speak hope, to speak relationship. Some of you in this room have left Jerusalem due to hurt, due to pastors like all over, due to pastors hurting you and you left Jerusalem because there's death there, because there's hurt there, because there's sorrow there. But God walks with you on the road and he welcomes you back to himself. So know that your encouragement today is that the road is always available to return. Know that the Lord, the God who rose from the grave, wants a real relationship with you. He wants to speak hope into the areas where you thought were dead. There are still places in your life that he wants to resurrect and bring to life. So that is your hope that God speaks to us to speak hope and to speak relationship.
Let's pray. God, you, man, man, you are good. I pray, Lord God, that you would receive all the glory, that um, you would speak to your people today, that you would encourage them that you have resurrected, that you are speaking hope, that you are speaking relationship. Father, I pray that your spirit would just fall upon us so that we can have hearts that burn with devotion and desire for you. And we thank you, God, for Easter, the meaning of Easter. Despite all the death that we see, despite all the things that are going on in our lives, that you want to be involved in that. And we pray this all in your son's name. Amen.